All right, welcome to the premiere episode of the Global Inquirer, where we take a look at intriguing stories and case studies from around the world to examine how global trends are impacting real lives and international relations. I'm your host, Nico Marsage, and today I'm joined by Derek Wong and Olivier Weiss to discuss Chinese geopolitical expansion. Specifically, we're going to take a look at a case study of these Filipino fishermen. So, Derek, I want to take it to you first. Can you tell me a little bit about these Filipino fishermen and the South China Sea? Yeah, of course. I'll just give you a brief overview. So the specific location that we're looking at is the Scarborough Shoal, which is located to the immediate west of the Philippines in the South China Sea. And so the important thing about the Scarborough Shoal is that it's incredibly important for the fishing industry in the Philippines. For a lot of these fishermen, the Scarborough Shoal is how they make their living. It's their entire livelihoods. And so if they don't have access to the Scarborough Shoal, they can only make maybe $10 a day. But if they have access to the Scarborough Shoal and its really rich fishing grounds, they can make as much as $250 per trip. So clearly, fishing in the shoal is incredibly important to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a tradition for these fishermen that's been passed down for generations. So you have entire generations of fishermen whose livelihoods and whose families really depend on having access to the Scarborough Shoals. But what's been going on the past few years in the shoal with these fishermen? So I'll give you a brief little chronology of what's been going on with the Scarborough Shoal. For many, many years, these fishermen have been using the shoal, um, getting fish from it, and that all changed in 2012. What happened was the Philippine Navy found Chinese fishermen in the Scarborough Shoal illegally harvesting endangered animals. And so they tried to arrest these Chinese fishermen. And so this provoked this entire international conflict where the Philippines said that the Scarborough Shoal was their sovereign territory. But the Chinese also claimed the Scarborough Shoal as part of their sovereign waters. And so ever since 2012, the Chinese Coast Guard has kept a strict grip over the Scarborough Shoal, preventing any Filipino fishermen from coming into the Scarborough Shoal and using it to fish. So there are these Chinese Navy ships there, but they're just preventing them from fishing and using soft power, right? It's a lot more than soft power. Ever since 2012, these Chinese Coast Guard ships have been very aggressively keeping Filipino fishermen out of the Scarborough Shoals. So they'll use tactics like bumping uh, Filipino fishing ships, or even using water cannons just to keep out the Filipino fishermen. And I imagine, has this dampened relations? Well, it definitely has been a huge flashpoint between the Philippines and the Chinese government. But recently, uh, the new president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, came up with an agreement with President Xi Jinping of China in order to reopen the Scarborough Shoals to the fishermen. When was this? Uh, this took place just last year. So what happened was Rodrigo Duterte went to China for a bilateral meeting, and he came up with a lot of different agreements, one of which was to reopen the Scarborough Shoal. So tell me a little bit more about this agreement. I feel like I need some, you know, a little bit more context to really understand what's been going on between the Philippines and China. Absolutely. So Rodrigo Duterte was recently elected in the Philippines, and he's an extremely controversial figure. Um, he ran on a very populist platform with policies that cracked down very hard on drug dealers because the drug trade is a really big social issue in the Philippines. So he really encouraged extrajudicial killings of drug dealers and a very violent crackdown on the drug trade. This attracted a lot of international criticism, including from the Obama administration. And so what this led to was Rodrigo Duterte moving away from the Philippines' traditional pro-U.S. foreign policy and moving closer to China. And so that was sort of where this agreement with China came about. But 
isn't this all great for the fishermen? Not exactly, because while the Philippines and uh, China have agreed to re reopen the Scarborough Shoals to fishermen, uh, they haven't made any formal agreement to resolve the sovereignty question. So really there's no resolution to whether or not the Scarborough Shoal actually belongs to the Philippines or to China. And so this is a really big issue for a lot of these Filipino fishermen who, while they're able to go back into the Scarborough Shoal and fish again, they don't know that you know, a couple months down the line, if China might send back its Coast Guard and stop them from fishing there again. And so this is an issue because without the Scarborough Shoal, their livelihoods are significantly impacted. Wow, I mean, it's just fascinating how these fishermen are sitting right in the middle of this built-up tension between the U.S. and China, and how both of these powers are pulling on both ends away from each other. Yeah. But I want to go back to the South China Sea, and this is where I want to bring you in, Olivier. Can you give me a little background to its importance? Why is China investing so much in the South China Sea? Absolutely. So from an economic perspective, I would stress three things. The first is that approximately $5 trillion worth of trade goes through the South China Sea annually. That constitutes about one-third of global trade. Um, half of the world's total tonnage of goods goes through, goes through the South China Sea. So in this way, it is one of the most important economic uh, waterways, uh, international waterways in the world. The second point I would stress, and that uh, the, the these Filipino fishermen off the Scarborough Shoal helps to evince, is that the, the, the South China Sea itself is a resource-rich uh, environment. Not only does it have these incredible sort of maritime ecosystems, but it also has uh, incredible fishing opportunities. It also has an incredible amount of oil. Um, some have even compared it to, uh, to the Middle East in this way, calling it a, a second Persian Gulf. And the third point is that a vast majority of uh, these, these Asia-Pacific region, region countries' um, energy supplies go through the Strait of Malacca uh, from the Indian Ocean into the South China Sea. Uh, and in, in this capacity as well, it is incredibly important for China, for Japan, and for others. So the South China Sea is really a crucial economic waterway, not just for the Asia-Pacific region, not just for these countries, but for the world. Right, yeah, this sounds like it's just so important economically for all these countries. And moreover, just looking on a map, you can see how geographically important it is. You have Brunei, Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore, China, Taiwan, and of course the Philippines, all coming together in the South China Sea. Can you explain a little bit more about its strategic and geographical influence over time? Absolutely. So these are not new claims, right? These contending claims that these various powers have over uh, the South China Sea and its, and its islands. So uh, the first thing to understand about the South China Sea is that there are, there are these four main groups of islands that are, under, that are in contention right now. The two most important of which are the Spratleys and the Scarborough Shoal, which is part of the Zongsha Island chain. The two others are the Paracels, which are closest to China, and the Pratas Islands are also very close to China. Um, all these are under contention because uh, under the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, um, every country has a 12-mile nautical zone that extends from their continental shelf. So essentially, all these countries have these, these overlapping um, 
claims on on these various island chains, and and these are mo- most crucially centered around the Spratly Island chains, which are the which are the furthest south of them. So wh- while these contending claims are not new, um, the 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 buildup of pressure that has been going on since about 2012 2013 is new. So you mentioned how this tension has really been building itself up lately, but how has it manifested itself specifically in the last five to six years? Right. Um, so the, the the primary cause of this sort of buildup of tensions, the primary manifestation has been China's aggressive uh, building of artificial islands in the South China Sea. So it would will take some reefs, these submerged reefs and, and other um, formations in the South China Sea, and will essentially bring all this sand and, and, and all this technology and equipment and create these artificial islands that uh, did not used to exist at high tide, but that now do. Um, and not only would, 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 it, would it create these, these new features, but it, it also has militarized them and, and put in place these fuel depots and these military runways for aircrafts and other uh, kinds of military assets that is increasingly presenting the other powers with this, with essentially a, a a a done deal in which the the Chinese control uh, the South China Sea simply by by exerting their power. You know, you can't just build up islands in the middle of the ocean. Is this legal? Uh, no, it, it's not. As I mentioned earlier, the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea specifically proscribes this kind of activity. It specifically states that uh, artificial islands do not constitute a, a, an extension of, of sovereignty. You cannot claim sovereignty over the creation of an artificial uh, island, nor can you claim sovereignty over any uh, features that cannot sustain life by themselves. So generally speaking, none of these islands for any of the powers extend their sovereignty in any significant manner. But uh, Ch- China has, has chosen uh, at this point, has elected to ignore this. So clearly, other countries have had issues with China building up islands in the region, right? Yeah, yes, they they, they have. The, the way that these have manifested these disagreements has been in accord with um, international law and its procedures. Specifically, the, the Philippines sued China in front of of uh, an international uh, tribunal at the Hague, and China lost that that case in July of 2016. They lost it, so China stopped building islands, right? Not exactly, no. Um, in, in fact, China has continued uh, to not only build, it, build artif- these artificial islands, um, but it has also continued to exert its authority uh, in, in, in waters that are in, by, by, in no way uh, theirs, according to international law. And, and that, that, has, that has led to a great deal of friction and tension, not only with uh, other powers in the Asia-Pacific region, like the Philippines, but also the United States, which is conducting freedom of navigation operations to push back against the, the, this, uh, these limits. So, sure, China completely defies this international tribunal. But taking a step back, what does this tell us about international institutions and their ability to limit Chinese geopolitical expansion? It's a crucial question because it gets at the fundamental uh, difficulty with with the enforcement of international law, which is that there is no such thing as a supranational, supranational world government there to enforce these claims or to enforce international law's provisions. So can China just simply bend and break the rules in their favor? If nobody stops them, yes. Um, and and that, that is the fundamental difficulty here. It, it, it's why the United States ha- has, uh, has conducted, as I mentioned previously, these freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. 
they're, they're symbolic in nature, right? The United States sends some kind of cruiser or destroyer into into waters, Chinese claim, as part of this 12 nautical mile, this 12 nautical mile zone that they believe uh, they are entitled to because of this extension that they've created through their artificial islands. And so the United States is, 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 is going into these waters that the Chinese claim are theirs in order to specifically state that, that this is an international waterway, that all actors, all participants have the freedom, uh, have the freedom to, to navigate in them. So the United States has tried to take this stand on behalf of international law. Right, but like you said, purely symbolic. It might not have any impact on Chinese geopolitical expansion. Does the U.S. look towards any of its allies maybe to limit this expansion as well? Absolutely, and this is part of the, the broader rebalancing to Asia framework that the Obama administration really insisted on during its second term. The United States has shifted uh, uh, has shifted about 60% of its naval and overseas air assets to the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, it is engaged in, in, a, in a bolstering of, of a web of ties with its allies in the region. Uh, in 2014, it signed a defense agreement with the Philippines that allowed for, for, the, for the establishment of more military bases on, on the Philippines in, in a 10-year in a span. It signed uh, a defense cooperation agreement as well with Singapore. Um, it strengthened ties with Australia. It, uh, it uh, named India as a major defense partner for the first time. So all these, these thickening webs of ties between the United States and its traditional allies in the region has essentially attempted to create this sort of pushback against the, the, this aggressive Chinese um, expansion. And it remains to be seen whether or not the United States can essentially play this role of the offshore balancer to China's uh, hegemonic attempt to control uh, the South China Sea. Now, given all the attention that the South China has received recently, is this just another growing signal to the fact that the Asia-Pacific region is increasingly emerging at the economic center of the world? Absolutely it is. There is a reason for which many pundits, observers, scholars have noted that the 21st century will be the, the Asian century. Um, the, the fact is that we are seeing a fundamental shift of, of, of power uh, from uh, the Atlantic to the Pacific. So the Asia-Pacific region is in the crosshairs of this huge shift in, in power. So Derek, let me have you chime in real quick. Yeah, if we look at how these large-scale geopolitics really affect the individual lives and the individual circumstances of fishermen and people who are living in the East Asia area. We can see how these geopolitics, this squabbling between China and the Philippines and the United States, ultimately that comes down to whether or not individual fishermen in the Philippines can make enough money to support their families. Right now, the fishermen are able to go back to the Scarborough Shoal and make money from fishing, but who's to say that China won't close that off in the coming months, in the coming years? Right now, a lot of fishermen's wives are currently abroad working as a domestic help in the Middle East or in other countries just to be able to support their families. So we see how the Scarborough Shoal isn't just a question of sovereignty and international politics between the U.S. and China and the Philippines, but it comes down to how it affects the individual lives of people affected by these kinds of policies. Wow. Now, I sort of want to play devil's advocate for a bit. Come on, in the 1980s, we were worried about Japan, and now it's China. Should we really be concerned about this expansion? Olivier, I want to hear what you have to say. 
Well, and it's it's a, it's a great parallel to mention, um, and I, I think it was it's been best demonstrated by by the, the current president of the United States, Donald Trump. In the twenty sixteen election, he made a big big deal of China's currency manipulation, of China's trade deficit with the United States, and he was essentially making the exact same point in the nineteen eighties. He took out a, a full page ad in the New York Times, blasting our trade policies with Japan uh, in nineteen eighty seven around nineteen eighty eight. So. The answer is that uh, while there was absolutely this sense in the 1980s that Japan was this rising power that was threatening American uh, primacy, there is a very distinct difference here in that Japan was a phenomenon of its own. It didn't have this wider regional tr- growth trend uh, that 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 China that China and others in the Asia Pacific region have displayed, and that essentially has led uh, many commentators and observers to note uh, this huge shift in power from the Atlantic to the Pacific, as I mentioned before. And if I could just chime in real quick, I would also say maybe it's an issue of Japan and other East Asian countries being traditional U.S. allies. So we see that Japan in post-World War II, countries like South Korea and the Philippines, have all traditionally been U.S. allies. But with the rise of China, I think this signifies something different in the U.S. foreign policy and a different kind of rival to uh, reckon with. So Derek, you started talking about the future a little bit there. And moving forward into my favorite part of this session, let's take a look into our crystal ball. Derek, how does Chinese geopolitical expansion play itself out, specifically in the next year or in the next five years? This is a question that has a lot of uncertainty associated with it. And that uncertainty mainly comes from the Trump administration and how its foreign policy is going to be a very sharp break from the Obama administration's foreign policy. So under the Obama administration, their East Asia policy was this pivot to Asia. Basically, they wanted to pivot to the East Asian area and create a stronger influence, a stronger power base in East Asia in order to act as a counterbalance to a rising China. And so this meant a lot of guaranteeing the security, whether that's military security or economic security, of their traditional East Asian allies like Japan, like the Philippines, like South Korea. But with Donald Trump, what we've seen is of shift in the emphasis in the East Asia region. You know, just last week, uh, Donald Trump met with President Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago, and his emphasis in his foreign policy with East Asia is mainly on renegotiating trade deals and a focus on preventing North Korea from getting nuclear weapons. So, Donald Trump and his foreign policy is really not that focused on the South China Sea's sovereignty and the sovereignty of the islands there. So. In the end, there could be a serious potential for military conflict or even um, full-scale military action in the South China Sea because these questions of sovereignty are just so contentious. We saw in 2012 with the Senkaku-Diaoyu Islands um, dispute with Japan that that came really close to coming to military conflict between China and Japan. And so that's a definite struggle that the Trump administration is going to have to deal with in terms of dealing with East Asia and the South China Sea. Like most things, a lot of doubt and ambiguity. I guess it remains to be seen how this conflict in the South China Sea will play itself out in the coming years. All right, guys. Well, that's it for our episode today. I want to thank you, Olivier and Derek, for coming on, and our audience, thanks for tuning in. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Does the Filipino example really matter? Should we really care about Chinese geopolitical expansion in the region? 
And while you're at it, go ahead and follow us on Twitter at underscore the Global Inquirer. Like us on Facebook and let us know what you think. I want to give a shout out here to The Odyssey, a local Charlottesville band who you heard here today. And I'll leave you with them. See you next time.